Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 110th show. Today's guest is Patrick McGinnis, author of Fear of Missing Out, which I think we all um, succumb to FOMO. And Patrick is the one who coined that phrase. Not many people that you ever meet in your life can actually say they've coined a phrase that's used globally and is in the dictionary. So Patrick, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So Patrick, let's start with you telling us about your professional background. So <clears throat> I have a very, I, I took a long and winding road uh, to quote the Beatles to where I am today. But essentially, I started out in investment banking uh, in Latin America investment banking because I had lived in Argentina in college. Then I moved on to venture capital in Latin America. Um, I headed out to business school up at Harvard. And then afterwards, Worked in international uh, emerging markets, private equity for five years. My company, AIG, blew up. I ended up leaving there to work for myself. And today I basically do three things, which is I do investing in the US and Latin America and early stage companies. I do advisory work. I send some boards and, and advise a couple of organizations. And I have a, a sort of a media career, which is a combination of writing books, speaking, um, podcasting, and stuff like that. Not a, a clearly there's not enough hours in the day for you. <laughs> that, that's true. And, and explains why you don't have children. Just 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 no time. <laughs> so um, why did you write this particular book? So I wrote this book because I was running around the world promoting my first book, which was called The 10% Entrepreneur. And that's about how to be a part time entrepreneur. And everywhere I went, people would. Um, always want to talk about FOMO because I, you know, had had invented the word when I was a business school student, and um, people would just say, you know, I have a friend who has FOMO, or I have FOMO. You know, will you take a selfie with me and stuff like that? And I just realized that it was this thing that everybody felt, no matter where I went, and it was oftentimes talked about kind of a jokey way, like, oh, FOMO, ha ha ha. But the more that I've started looking into it, and what's crazy interesting is that it's actually been studied, uh, FOMO has been studied by clinical psychologists for years now, for more than 10 years, and they've written all this research. What I realized was that it's really a problem, and it's actually, you know, sort of causes people real sort of physical and mental uh, impacts on their well-being. And I decided that if I was the one who had identified this term, which I was, that it was also incumbent on me to try to find a way to unpack it and help people to deal with it. And so that was the inspiration. And so I started working on it um, in 2000 and I guess 18 was when I started working on the concept of the book. And then it came out in, in about a year ago. And can you give some examples you've experienced yourself and you write about them in the book, especially when you were a student at Harvard? Yeah, I so... 
as the creator of FOMO, I can tell you that I have FOMO all the time. Still, I, I manage it, but it's deeply embedded in who I am as a human being. And so I'm, I'm very in touch with my FOMO. And I would say, you know, going to business school. So I, before business school, I was uh, in New York and I was here for 9-11. I took my GMAT on September 10th, 20, uh, 2001. So like literally took the GMAT. Next morning, 9-11 happens. And I was sort of like, you know, many of us at the time felt that the world would never be the same. And in many ways it has not been. And I just sort of felt like every minute had to be lived to the max. And I had to sort of really take advantage of everything. And then when I started business school, I had never expected to go to a place like that. It was not, you know, I'm from a small town in Maine. It's not something that I saw as being in the cards for me. But when I got there, I was like, wow, this is an amazing place. And I'm so happy to be here. And I want to do all these things. And I want to take advantage of every opportunity. And so that really manifested itself in the form of FOMO. That's where the FOMO came from for me, was this notion that like I'm in a choice-rich environment full of opportunity, and I must take advantage of every opportunity all the time. And so that you know meant going... I mean, I went to every company presentation. I applied for jobs I had no interest in. I went to every social event. I went all the trips. Like I was just like a spinning top for two years. And I realized how exhausted I was. And that's where I started referring to things as you know, this sort of these feelings, this fear of missing out or FOMO. And I wrote an article about them in the school newspaper. Sounds like you were living in witness protection or something and finally got out. Yeah. And were able to <laughs> enjoy all this. So um, what did your parents do? So my mom, uh, <laughs> my mom worked uh, most of my life at small companies in my hometown uh, of Skylight Company. She was an inside sales uh, at the companies that she worked at. And, my, and then she later on went on to do something that uh, she really enjoyed, which was helping um, sort of working for our town, helping people to get housing, Section 8 housing and stuff like that. My father worked for the government. He was a... Um, he was a... Uh, if you ever seen the, the movie, The Hunt for Red October, at the end of oh, the yeah. movie, the, you remember the submarine comes up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire? Yeah. So, so my father worked at that shipyard and he would um, he was an, a supervisor for the painting of the hulls of the, the nuclear submarines. Interesting. Wow. So your parents had interesting experiences. Y you write about the reasons people need to feel accepted. Well, what are they and how can people make sure it doesn't negatively impact them? Uh, and who are who are they and how do they feel about themselves? Yeah, you know, I think, listen, we live in a world where we are deeply coded uh, in our DNA to, to want to be part of the crowd, right? So if you think about it, uh, in, the, in the book, I use this, this, this reference to the wildebeest in Africa. If you ever get the chance to go see the wildebeest migration, which I was very fortunate to see now twice, and both times I was like, this is insane. You see all these wildebeest running together and then like one of they're like all following each other in a line and then they stop and they kind of swarm together and then they start again and that's how they you know go across the serengeti and do what they got to do and that's that's it, it's an imperative that's in their dna because it's a survival mechanism swarm migration you know if you have 250 wildebeest in a little group if a, a predator comes along maybe the predator gets one but they can't pick off all of them whereas if you split them up you could eat, you know, all the wildebeest could die. So that's how they they form. And we as humans, in the earliest humans, also were like that. They had to stick together in a crowd to survive in the harsh environment of the early sort of, um, you know, the early humans. Now, today we don't need 
the physical safety that is provided by the herd, but we do need the emotional safety, many of us. And so this idea of like, I've got to go to this, I've got to watch this, I've got to do this, I've got to see this, I got to do this career. I have to, you know, think about like, you know, when you, when you, when you're like a, a kid, that you have to always, you, people run in packs. There's like a leader, there's an alpha and all the people following around. This is part of the human experience. But the problem is if that becomes your, your, your mindset for living life, if, if you're going to law school because all your friends are, if you are, um, you know, um, picking up hobbies, joining the tennis club, cause everybody else did, you spend so much of your time living other people's dreams that you forget what yours are. And that is not a well-lived life. And so that's where the FOMO gets problematic. It's like, it takes you away from living an authentic life. That's, and it, and it sounds like, so, um, woo woo, but if you think about it, it isn't because it's like, it's like, why am I off doing somebody else's sort of life plan when I haven't taken the time to figure out what mine is. And that's where FOMO gets in the way. Yeah. I, I think that's also, um, I'm 61. So my generation and before that, your parents were almost determining what your professional life was going to be and mm-hmm. must also who they wanted you to marry and so forth. And you kind of got went along with it because all your friends went uh, there as well. But then my generation decided, you know what, that's, that's not a good idea. And you should pick your own path and so forth. But still, people are so highly influenced uh, by their friends, sometimes for good and sometimes for really bad, right? Totally. And there's nothing wrong, by the way, like, Part of me says, oh, wouldn't it be nice to live in a small village somewhere where life is, there's just less choice, right? Because FOMO and FOBO, which, which is the other concept I talk about in the book, are these are, these are really, um, for many people, not all people, but for many people are afflictions of affluence. You, know, you can't, you can't um, feel these feelings if you, if you don't believe you have choices in life. And so if you live in a town where there's four other people that you could marry, Versus if you live in a town when there's 4,000, like the problem set is different. And so, uh, so it, it, there is some beauty to, you know, like, it's like, I, I yearn for the days when there was just like three channels on TV, because then like, I wouldn't spend four, four, four hours trying to figure out what to watch on Netflix. Right. So there's a, an interesting dichotomy there about what, you know, choice rich environments do to us. I thought FOBO was more interesting myself and hearing you talk about. So please explain what that is and how best to manage it so it doesn't destroy us. Yeah, and Brandon just put in the chat analysis paralysis, which is spot on because FOBO, and I agree, is way more interesting to me as well because FOBO is the thing that, like anybody can feel FOMO, right? FOMO is the kind of thing where like I have a, you know, you have a dog, dogs have FOMO, they're waiting by the door. You have little kids that don't wanna go to bed because they're like, they wanna see what's gonna happen. like. You know, you go anywhere in the world. If you have a cell phone, you can have FOMO because you're like on Instagram seeing, you know, what's happening out there. It's very, um, it's very uh, sort of widespread. And, and a lot of it is sort of, you know, uh, frankly, it's, it can be a positive motivator. And so there's some good in the FOMO. FOBO, on the other hand, that one is, that's, you know, that's like a really dangerous place to be because FOBO, fear of a better option, is this idea that even if you have perfectly acceptable uh, sort of uh, options in front of you, you can't choose because you're waiting for something better to come along. So it's this idea of wanting to make riskless decisions at all times. And the, the thing about FOBO, there's nothing good in FOBO. FOBO is always bad because it's bad for you and it's bad for all the people who are waiting for you to make a decision before they can do what they need to do. So you're causing sort of external 
um, negative externalities. And it is a, you know, it's a really uh, pervasive among people who have lots of options. And so the more powerful and successful and more affluent you get, the more likely you are to feel FOBO. And it's also one of these things where, you know, I mentioned like Netflix, like when, if you're sitting there trying to find something to watch on TV or you're on online on Seamless or Uber Eats, spending an hour trying to figure out what you want to eat, it's just a massive uh, sort of waste of your cognitive ability on things that don't really matter. What companies do you think are crippled by FOBO? Because I think there's quite a few companies uh, that are crippled and hence why some of these, you know, especially in the Fortune 500, end up disappearing. Yeah, it's the classic, you know, as you think about the, the upstart competitor and then the incumbent and the upstart comes in and they just don't have the resources to have FOBO. They're sort of like, listen, we have, we just raised a round of venture capital. We can't sort of be precious. We need to, you know, figure out our prototype, put it in a market, learn something, pivot, move on, that sort of stuff, like classic lean, lean, uh, the lean startup kind of mindset. And then you have the massive company with a huge R&D budget who can't get out of its own way because they're having so many internal meetings to try to figure out, you know, which strategy to follow. And you see this a lot. Uh, you know, one, one great example that, that I, that I particularly enjoyed, um, and I wrote about in the book is the story of Audi and Tesla, where Audi first declared its intention to launch an electric vehicle back in 2009. And this was years before Tesla was sort of out and about doing anything. And they basically every year change their strategy. They would, you know, like there'd be some new information that they would, so they would kind of like rejigger the whole strategy and they never even launched an EV until 2019. So it took them 10 years. Meanwhile, Tesla comes out in 2012, gets its first prototype out there, gets it on the market, learns from the customers, moves on. They've launched you know, a, a bunch afterwards. And you see the effect, which is that uh, nowadays, you know, when, when this all started, Audi was worth like 40 billion and Tesla was worth like you know, 1 billion. And now, of course, Audi's worth like 80 billion. So they doubled the market cap, yay. But Tesla's worth like a trillion. So th th their inability to just pick a lane and move on it vis-a-vis -vis Tesla, which just did it, shows you how FOBO can be very expensive. Is that, is that the difference between entrepreneurial leadership and traditional corporate leadership where somebody works their way up, they're not as risk-taking, they're managing the st uh, stockholder and the shareholders and so forth? I think it's a combo of that for sure. That Because FOBO is, is, you know, one of the root causes of FOBO is risk aversion. So it's this, you know, idea of like, I don't want to choose the wrong thing. It's, you know, like, oh, nobody ever regretted choosing IBM, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. And at the same time, I think it's really about having too many choices and not being able to parse through them. So when you're an entrepreneur and you have limited resources, you just don't have the luxury of sort of trying to drum up a thousand things that you could choose from. You just kind of have to do. Whereas large companies, they have huge budgets. They, they're like, well, you know what? We can just put another billion into research next year and we'll figure out you know, a better solution maybe. That sort, of, that sort of luxury cultivates indecision for some companies. You wrote about the combination of FOMO and FOBO cause fear of doing anything. A lot of people, and for that matter, organizations fear failure. How do you get people to overcome their fear of failure? Oh, so, before you do that, can you tell them again what FOBO is? Sure. Fear of a better option. It's defined as the anxiety caused by the, um, the inability to choose among 
perfectly acceptable options combined with a desire to, to, to optimize uh, option value. So, you know, an intrinsic, the idea like option value is, is so great that we want to just keep it out there and we don't want to decide until we absolutely think we have the perfect combination of things, which doesn't exist. So you're fooling yourself because you can't predict the future. Um, and the thing so about the question, yeah, yeah. Fo FODA, so good old FODA. Um, when you have FOMO and FOBO at the same time, like you want to do everything and yet you're unwilling to choose anything, you really get stuck. It's like you're in quicksand. And the problem there is that you're just, um, you're, you've disconnected what happens with people in this situation. And they see it all the time is that we are giving too much power to one decision. So there's this kind of mythology out there that, um, that there are like four or five or six big decisions in life. And if you get them right, great. And if you don't, then you're kind of done and your life will be terrible. And there are probably some, I'm, I'm not going to say there aren't some decisions that are like that, like deciding whether or not to break the law. Like that's a pretty, pretty big one. Like, you know, it's like, am I going to be an insider trader or not? Like that, that can really shift like the contours of your life, but deciding what job to take right after school or deciding what uh, city to live in. These things are important, of course, but they're really just, they're like the opening bids, opening hands in a game of poker or a game of cards or something like that. You know, they are the beginning of the game. And when you take a decision, what you're really doing is just moving forward to the next series of decisions and so on and so forth. And we make decisions all the time that are consequential in our lives. And so that is what happens with, with FODA is that we have gotten to the point where we believe that this thing is so important and must be so perfect and we must do it that we're unable to do, decide on anything because we want everything, but we're so afraid of choosing the wrong thing that we want nothing at the same time. And that, that's just a place you don't want to be in because nobody, you know, nobody ever said like, wow, that person was such a great leader. They never decided anything, right? Of course not. Um, great leaders make decisions. They have to, and they might make the wrong decision. But if they don't make a decision at all, you know, then then then, then they, they can't even start playing the game. So how do you get these people, get them over their fear of failure? I yell at them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't do that. I would never yell at anybody. Um, so the, I think the, the big thing that happens, I mean, there's a bunch of strategies, but let's just look at what's happening when you feel these fears. When you have FOMO and FOBO, you are telling yourself a story in your head. It is a story of your, of your, oh, you were the author of that story. And it, it is largely fictional. So let's say I'm choosing, uh, I remember, so I, when I was going to business school, I got, I got into Wharton and Harvard. And I was very thankful for that, that I was like, wow, how did this happen? But then I started into the next thing is which should I choose? And I would have sleepless nights. I would, I remember laying in bed, and thinking like, this is a very high class problem, but I can't decide between these two schools. I don't want to get it wrong. What if I go to one school and I don't like it? What if I go to the other? All that sort of stuff. Now, the vast majority of the things I was thinking about in my head were completely invented. I was imagining things that would happen in a year or two. I had no evidence that those things would happen. Um, and so I was so stuck in this world of my own creation, this series of concerns that I had self-imposed that I really didn't, you know, didn't focus on the tangible. And then, of course, I went and visited the schools and spent time there. And I realized, like, all the things I was worried about were, were sort of 
they were self-imposed. And that's what happens when we have FOMO and FOBO is that we are so up in our own head that we are no longer um, making decisions based on facts. We are making them based on fear. And so the way to, of course, then combat that is to stop that cycle. And there's a bunch of ways to do that. One is just sort of getting, getting more data and getting out of your head. Another that really helps a lot of people is meditation because you stop the, you stop that sort of that, that negative uh, series of cycles in your head. Um, you can get advice from people. There's a bunch of different ways, but just knowing and being in touch with the fact that you are sort of writing this whole narrative inside your own head that's disconnected from reality is a really good starting point to recognize that you can overcome fear-based decision-making. You talked about your time at Harvard and you've been talking about it you know, for most of this interview so far, how you maximized your participation, but essentially taking part in everything the school had to offer. Why did you do that and what was the impact? I guess I'm really interested in the impact and looking back, would you have done it differently? So what happened for me as I mentioned, I never, like, I couldn't believe I was there. I was sort of like, how did this happen to me? Because um, I didn't really know anybody who'd gone there and it just seemed like a fictional place. And um, as an undergraduate, I was, uh, I remember graduating and saying, well, I got really high grades, but I didn't really meet anybody here. Like you're supposed to make your best friends in college. And I don't think I did that. And um, feeling deep disappointment that I had sort of not really taking advantage of the opportunities that were presented to me in the way that I wish I had done. And, you know, I'm glad I studied. That's great. But, you know, I felt like I could have probably studied slightly less and had more social development. And so when I got into business school, having just been through 9-11, I was sort of like, I'm not doing that again. I'm going to optimize for meeting people and learning new things and and exposing myself to new ideas and you know, rethinking everything. Like maybe I don't want to be on wall street. Maybe I should work in real estate, you know, or a hedge fund or something, which I, you know, I think I would have been bad at, but anyway, so I was in this very much, like I wanted to drink from the fire hose kind of thing. And I think, frankly, I'm glad I did that. Um, because it was a really, uh, it was a really fun and exciting and mind opening series of experiences. But what I also realized is like, I, I lacked focus. And so it was good to do that for a period of time. But like, I think about some of my classmates who came in with much more focus and they were and like, they did really cool things. They were like, I want to work at a tech company and they got a job at Google pre IPO, stuff like that. Or they did the business plan competition, start a company. Like I didn't, I, I was way too spread to be able to do things that might've really been more impactful for me. And so that's what I kind of learned at the end. When I look back, I was like, I'm really glad I did this, but I didn't, I didn't uh, sort of invest enough time in trying to figure out why I was there and what I wanted to do with it because I was so busy doing everything. And so that's what I would change about it. Now, a question from the audience. Do you feel people should embrace the idea of like there is joy in missing out? So the joy of missing out, Jomo, is a um, is a, a another term that's kind of come become rather popular, which is which is great. And I think Jomo is I have I have a kind of complicated feelings about Jomo, and I'll tell you why. Jomo as a as a concept is great. You know, yes, the idea that you are I always think of like a person meditating on a mountaintop. They have you know they're in their moment. They're not worried about you know what their friends doing. They are you know they are self possessed and focused. So awesome. Like that is, 
that is like the place we all want to go. And I, I, you know, strive for that in my own life. My concern with Jomo as a term is that people throw it around in a very, in a way that I think is actually quite counterproductive because they'll be like posting on Instagram, how much Jomo they have. And I want to say to them, well, if you have so much Jomo, why the hell are you telling me about it? Right? Like just keep your Jomo to yourself. And so I think we just need to recognize that it is, if, if it is a, it's a very helpful destination that we want to head to, but it, it is not, um, it requires a lot of work and, and it's being thrown around in a way that I think is very shallow. Um, and the other thing is that Jomo works really well for the small things in life. Like, Oh, I didn't go to Firefest. I have Jomo like, okay, makes sense. Love that. But you know, it's like, how about things like I didn't find fulfillment in my job. I have Jomo, but, you know, no, of course that doesn't work. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a cool idea, but oftentimes misapplied. Oh my God. My mom would never sign up for this concept of Jomo. <laughs> so always think about what's like the best, best opportunity or inviting her to dinner and she can, well, I don't, I'm afraid I might miss out on this other uh, party with the ladies and our Mahjong game. So yeah, my mom's not signed up for that. Why yeah. do people get caught up with the concept of everyone else is doing something? Why shouldn't I? That's interesting. That's kind of like the, there was a book by Shonda Rhimes called the year of saying yes, which is kind of like what I guess I was talking about earlier. It's like, um, you know, I wanted to do all the things. And I think what happens is we live, you know, we're very lucky. It's obviously it's nothing is perfect. And we've had a couple of tough years as a planet and probably we'll have some more. It's just challenging out there. Um, but I think the thing is that we doing things is frictionless in a way it wasn't in the past. Like you can kind of do anything you want with the internet and technology. And so, you know, in the old days, like you think about a Disney movie and like Disney heroes, they have that song they sing, like the I wish song. And it's like, they, they it's like, I, I, if, if you want to, if you're Belle and you want to get out of your village in beauty and the beast, like it's kind of a big, it takes a lot of work nowadays. People move like the next day. And so we, we live in a, a time where the frick, the level of friction to do the things we want to do is, is much lower. And as a result, we have many more options that we can, we can go after and, and that's the temptation, I think, is that we get sort of more, we're more likely to get sucked into those kinds of things. And that's, again, it's going to be good because it's motivating, it's motivating, but it can be bad if you spend all your time running after things that really don't fit what you want to do. It's funny. I worked in Latin America for nine years also in Chile, Peru, Colombia, Guatemala, mm -hmm. Panama. And um, people always are amazed at the amount of choices we have in the United States. Like they just can't comprehend that literally every choice on the planet earth can be found in the United States. And, it, and they would tell me it's, it was overwhelming uh, to be part of that fun in the beginning and then overwhelming as time went along. Yeah, it's true. I, you know, you hear about, I remember a friend of mine, she went to the Peace Corps and um, somewhere in uh, Zimbabwe, I think she went to, I can't quite remember, but I think it was Zimbabwe and uh, or Malawi. And she came back and she went to the grocery store and, you know, the classical, like, it's like the classic, like, you know, oh my God, we're so spoiled and it's terrible. And I think that has, it's, it was, I kind of laughed at the time, but it is true. Like you go to the supermarket and you're like, the other day I was at my hometown of Maine in this small supermarket and they had like, I was trying to buy like soy sauce. There were like nine types at a little tiny place. I was like, what, what is going on here? Right. It's kind of overwhelming. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I was like, I just walked out. I was like, forget it. <laughs> we <laughs> 
Here's a question from the audience. Do you find that FOMO and FOBO is more prevalent in the developed world or developing world? That's interesting. Yeah, I love that question. And I some so I, I for those of you who don't know me yet uh, or getting to know me today, I've traveled a ton. So I've been to 104 countries um, and I've spent a ton of time overseas. Um, I love traveling and spending time in different cultures. And um, I'll give you the the analogy of um, I spent some time a couple of years back in a Syrian refugee refugee camp in in in, uh, in Lebanon uh, in the Bekaa Valley. And my takeaway from that day was people had FOMO. Um, they had plenty of FOMO because you know they were living in this very suspended animation, wanting to go back to most people from Aleppo. They were like. So they, they see the world moving on without them while they're stuck and they have cell phones. And so they're watching, you know, they're seeing the opportunities that they can't avail themselves of because they're in this really terrible situation. So I, I, the FOMO, the FOMO, excuse me, you know, you can see that, you know, I remember talking to a young man who really wanted to be a programmer and that's his dream, but like, he's not, he just couldn't, there was no place for him to learn at that point. I guess he could teach himself. So Anyway, that that was struck me on the FOBO side. People didn't have FOBO because they didn't have options. Unfortunately, they were stuck there waiting for the war to end so they could go home or that they could move to another country and, and start their lives anew. And so I do think that um, that that is a, a thing that we see. The other thing, though, is that if you live in a low information society and I've been um, I've seen this in a couple different places. One one was um, in Turkmenistan, where there's just like the internet, sort of like very regulated. There's no social media, so people just don't see a lot of things that trigger FOMO. They're not they're not getting the the sort of information from people that are bragging online, or they're not learning about opportunities they could go after. They have less FOMO, and I think also in highly religious societies where people are deeply faithful. And they're like, they're focused on like, I know what I, what I want. I'm like focused on, you know, these things, family or whatever. Um, th there can be a social dynamic there as well. So there is definitely social and, and, and um, other sort of factors. But I would generally say that in developing countries, um, there is less FOBO just because there's less sort of, you know, it's, it, it, it's, there's less that people can choose between. And that can be good. It can be bad. Um, and another question from the audience, could you also explain how collectivist versus individual societies are affected by FOMO and FOBO? I know you touch on it in the book. I do. Yeah. And it's a wonderful question. And it, I, I will not claim to be an expert on this because it, it is, you know, a, a whole area of sort of sociology and demography um, that I'm sure people have written a thousand books about. But what we do see is that when you have a collectivist culture where you have a deeply uh, formed set of shared values and practices, um, you have a, a, you're sort of like the way you view the world is different than a highly individualistic society like the United States, where everybody thinks they should have the best all the time. And it's all about, you know, not to stereotype Americans, but, you know, we do have like a cultural proclivity to thinking that we should have the best all the time for us. And oh, so yeah. therefore, Therefore, if you're in a collectivist society, your ability to sort of like deal with these foes is higher because you have other criteria and values that are more important to you than simply just optimizing your own existence. Is social media like Facebook and Instagram, which are part of the same company, a force for good or evil? I should also put in Twitter as well. Oh man, they're pretty bad. I mean, I use them. Don't get me wrong. I think they're generally pretty evil. Um, 
I mean, we now know not to get into politics, but we know that, you know, the algorithms are used to radicalize people. And so that's bad. But I would say just from a not even going into that whole area, um, well, the way I think about social media is this, because in my own life, I've had to reestablish a healthy relationship. And the one that really messes with my head is LinkedIn. LinkedIn is a place to go. When I go on there, I always feel like I'm not successful and I'm not doing enough because you see your friend, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, this person just got made a partner. This person got an article about them in the newspaper. And you're like, well, what have I been doing all week? Right. And so it's like natural. It, it, and, and, um, so I generally think they are, they are bad for us. That said, you know, it's hard to sort of not use them at all. And so the way that I think about my own interactions and I encourage people is when you're using it, be in touch with how you feel. If something makes you feel bad, then you need to cut it out. So I unfollow things that make me feel bad. I, you know, I go back and look at what I post and I'm like, oh my goodness, why did I say that? And I learn from it. So it's important to just like sort of regulate that stuff. I'm going to have to cancel you out, Patrick, after we get off here. <laughs> Um, you write about why influencers have the ability to cause us to want, buy, or do something. Please explain how they seem to have this power and why do people follow them? Yeah. So, I mean, influencers aren't new, right? Like there is, um, I've been looking into this a little bit and, but you think about like in the fifties when you, there used to be those shows like the General Motors television hour or whatever um then they'd have like ginger rogers or somebody who'd be like smoking a cigarette she'd be like oh the cigarette is so great it makes me it makes me feel so beautiful and um you know that was like the early days of influencing it's like people using their their fame to convince us that we should do what they do and so that that is not new that's i mean it's at the root of all advertising now i think that it's obviously been hyper um hyper uh, sort of um uh, sort of strengthened because nowadays, which is so crazy about social media, if you flick through, like say you follow your best friend, you follow your neighbor, you follow Jennifer Aniston. It's like, you'll have a post from your friend about a restaurant. And then you got Jennifer Aniston telling you about her sunglasses and stuff. So it gets all jumbled up and you, it's hard to like, it's hard to remember like Jennifer Aniston doesn't know who the heck I am. I mean, nothing against her, love her, but you know, she's just getting paid. And so I think that 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 sort of ability for celebrities to monetize their followings has really created a culture where um, we are being given so many more coded messages about about stuff in in the content that we consume. And I think it's gonna, you know, consumers are smarter than they used to be about that. We see it in a different way, and I think kids are particularly savvy. But it can be tricky to spot. I, I thought this was interesting. FOMO can cause herd mentality. You mentioned this in the book. How do you make sure you as an individual or a business doesn't follow the herd off the cliff? Yeah. You know, it's a lot of times you don't know you you're in the herd until you go off the cliff. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem, but I think the easiest way to do that, the most important way is, and I see this all the time and like, oof, go, go to a website of a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, go look at the website and look at the people on the team. You know what they're going to look like a bunch of dudes, white men, wearing like fleeces and they all went to the same schools and they all live in the same neighborhood and they all bike and they're all like they're all the same and that's the thing about like having a team where there's no diversity is that the chance that you're gonna have groupthink goes way through the roof and so one really powerful way to introduce uh uh 
the ability to not follow the herd is to have teams that have different types of people on them. You know, whether it's, you know, on all dynamics, age, um, race, religion, background, um, experience, perspective, uh, and then encourage people to, to come to work and create a culture in which people can show up and be who they are. Cause when you do that, I mean, my team, I think about my team that works with me is, um, we're seven, I believe we have, uh, five of the people are women, two of us are men. Um, people are located all over the world. We have one person who's in West Africa. We have people in the States. We have people in Latin America and like the, we're all really different. And so as a result, like we disagree and I, the chance of me going after the herd is much lower than it would be. Could you talk about how retailers use FOMO to drive sales? Absolutely. Just look at your email inbox. Um, the amount of emails that will say, don't miss out one day only, um, that kind of stuff. Like these, it's incredible. Once you start to, once you know how this stuff is used and maybe you've spotted it, maybe you haven't yet, but you will just read, um, any offer. Like it's really crazy. If you buy like a plane ticket on Expedia, they always say like three seats left. Oh, price going up tomorrow, all those things, anything that is convincing you that the offer that is on the table will not be there a little later and you have to move now is FOMO-based advertising. Do leaders use FOMO and FOBO to motivate people internally? Have you seen that? Yes, and that's wonderful. So the, the FOMO is not all bad. FOMO is a powerful motivator. And I've seen this, I did a really interesting session actually with a firm on Wall Street about how to use FOMO to increase sales. And, um, you know, it can also be used to, to increase um, creativity and productivity. Anytime you run some sort of challenge within a company or you have some sort of, um, some sort of imposed deadline, um, it, can be, it can be great. I think the, the thing about giving people specific goals and then telling them like, do it by this date. And by the way, there's a competitive element those, if they're structured well, they can use FOMO to, to get the best out of people um, in the same way that you would as an advertiser. So they can be powerful. The, the critical thing is to recognize FOMO can be a powerful and healthy sort of source of motivation, but that you can't deploy it all the time because frankly, the more you do that, the more you can distract people. And so it has to be deployed sort of in a sensible way. A uh, friend of mine, uh, his name is Louis Ferranti and he was an associate with the Gambino crime family. And he wrote a book called Mob Rules, which is terrific, uh, that everyone felt a sense of FOMO when you saw your boss talking quietly with a colleague because yeah. you were worried that your colleague was getting ahead of you. And you said one of two things could happen. You could light a fire under you or do, and do more, or it can make you uh, paranoid and negatively impact your relationship with your boss and your colleagues. Yeah. What, what's your thoughts on this? I'd just be worried they were going to, they were talking about killing me. So I guess... I, I'm more paranoid than anybody, but that's exactly right. I think like so many leaders, I, I remember um, learning about the leadership style of uh, Maurice Greenberg, who was the CEO of AIG. Remember him? Right. He was famous for, and also I've heard this is what Boris Johnson does. Um, I heard, I had a meeting with uh, somebody who works with him. What both of those guys do is they'll, they'll say there's a task. And they're like, I want you to do this thing. They go to three different people and tell them to do it. And then they like let them compete against each other. And so for the leader, it's actually probably, it's probably better. They probably get a better outcome, but they burn through people so quickly that their teams are unstable. And I think that's exactly right. Like you get to the point where 
you're burning people out because you're causing all this stress for them and it's it's demotivating. And so while you may as a leader get the thing you want in the short term, in the long term, you're not building a culture that's sustainable. Yeah, I know somebody who worked in a culture like that and she said all the top people were in therapy before therapy became popular wow. uh, to everybody and said and a couple of them just quit and quit being in, this, in that field. There was an ad agency. Uh, do you think that a question from the audience, do you think the narrative of finding your passion exacerbates FOMO and FOBO? 100%. And I remember I was an early member of WeWork. I was in the second ever WeWork and they were like, they plastered all everything on everything. Do what you love, do what you love. And I was sort of like, I remember that I, I classify that as entrepreneurship porn. It's yeah. this notion, you know what I mean? It's, it's different than porn entrepreneurship, by the way, just for those of you who are, who, who were wondering, um, <laughs> I, I, I can't ascribe to either of them, but, uh, what I, what I think happens is we're sold this bill of goods that like some people just have, like they do what they love all the time. And it's so great. And the rest of us haven't found that yet. And therefore we are incomplete. And as somebody who has found the thing that he's meant to do, and I really, truly enjoy what I do. Like I still, you know, it's 20% of it is what really lights me up. The other 80% is work. And I, I, I don't mind, I'm happy to do it, but, um, I think this, we, we are very lucky if we can find things that make us happy for 20% of the time. And then the rest is, you know, supporting those things. And, and, um, and this notion that somehow we all can just discover what we want. The reality is that like, we all need to make money to live. Right. And if you do that and you find meaning in the work you do, and you're able to do some things that you love, like that's a pretty good place to end up. You had an interesting story about how Pepsi was worried about missing out on a significant piece of history showing how FOMO can result in a disaster. Please tell that story and what companies, especially marketers, learn from it. Yeah, the old Crystal Pepsi. So I remember this when I was a little kid. I remember Crystal Pepsi. I think I drank Crystal Pepsi. And basically Pepsi was like trying to keep up. They had FOMO uh, because Sprite, Sprite came out of nowhere and everybody wanted Sprite. I remember this was like my, I drank a lot of soda as a child. And uh, so they launched Crystal Pepsi to try to be like Sprite, and it was a massive fail. And we see that many times over where companies will launch a product. You know, look at CNN Plus is a great example of FOMO. They launched the streaming service yeah, because everybody else is. Morning. Yeah. And then they, they spent half a, tr a billion dollars, excuse me, and then they shut it down after one month. Now, what is happening there? Well, <clears throat> companies... They look at their competitors and they're like, they feel that they have to keep up. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, that thought process. You do need to think about that, but they end up getting into things that they haven't thought through that they don't really understand. They don't even know if it makes sense for them, but they're running after this thing because they don't want to fall behind and they, you know, they can fail. And so you see that over and over again with companies that get into business in the I wrong I was thinking places. of the Kylie Jenner example you gave in the book oh yeah oh sorry i thought you meant crystal pepsi yeah mm. good old kylie jenner they made this uh, uh, this is so stupid uh that they did this but like this was around the time that uh, black lives matter had become a really big conversation in the united states um and pepsi decided to make a video um kind of like using black lives matter as a sales tool and they had this like protest that was meant to look like a black lives matter protest but was like more um kendall jenner sorry kendall. Uh, Ken, yeah we won't yeah 
I can't tell them apart at this point. Um, yeah. But <laughs> they're just all really rich, apparently. But they, they use this um, iconography of Black Lives Matter to try to sell Pepsi. And they made this video that landed like a thud because people were offended by the fact that they were using legitimate protests and a really important social movement to try to create FOMO for people to buy a soda. And um, it was roundly um, mocked and it was taken down within 24 hours and Pepsi apologized and Kendall apologized and, you know, it was, it was bad. And so what I said in, in the book, and I, you know, obviously believe is that, you know, you, you cannot sort of like when you're, when you're communicating with clients or, or customers, like just trying to like take popular culture and then adapt it to your needs, especially when it's something that's like, you know, important and, 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 and it's about like people's lives, you know, that, that they wanted to be part of the movement, but they did it in a way that was completely inauthentic. There are times we get lucky and have multiple excellent options, especially when it comes to hiring people, selecting a strategic partner or picking one product to develop over another. What's your recommended methodology, which you talk about solving this problem in the book for making the best possible choice, or at least one that doesn't leave you with a significant regret? Yeah. So the thing that's crazy about all this stuff is that, uh, and uh, Barry Schwartz writes about this in The Paradox of Choice, which is a wonderful book. And um, he talks about the fact that the research shows us that people who are maximizers, meaning the people who do tons of work and re research endlessly, they end up making actually better choices. Like, you know, if you were to measure out, their choices are better. They spend a ton of time on it. Um, but they are less satisfied than people who just sort of like what are called satisficers who choose what's good enough. They are less satisfied because the person who's the maximizer spends so much time uh, researching all the potential options that they spend after they made the decision there, they feel regret about the road that was not taken. And so it's like very paralyzing for them. And so that's kind of interesting. And so kind of uh, when we think about how to move past FOBO, remembering that FOBO represents fear of a better option where you have acceptable options in front of you. So you don't have FOBO if it's like, well, I'm choosing between going to the theater tonight or, you know, jumping off a bridge, right? It's, it's sort of like, it's, it's, you know, it's like, I'm going to the theater or I'm going to go to the restaurant. I can't decide. You know, it's, it's clearly both things are, are perfectly acceptable. Um, when we have those, we have to move past those. And there's kind of different ways to do that. If it's a very inconsequential decision, I outsource it. Either I flip a coin or I, I ask a friend. <laughs> Um, like if I can't decide between like I, one that I always have is, should I go for a run today? And then I'm just like, I don't know. And I'm five minutes later, I'm still trying to decide. I just flip a coin and then I just do it, whatever, you know, the coin says. Um, when it comes to things like, you know, sort of more important decisions, but things that aren't earth shattering, like, you know, I think it was like when I wanted to buy a computer monitor, I spent, I went on Amazon, there's like 500 choices. It's so overwhelming. I just asked, I went to Wirecutter, the New York Times recommendation site. And I just choose the one that they said was good, done. And then, or I ask a friend or something. And then when it's the big decisions, um, this is, and I get into this, and I did this Ted talk called how to make faster decisions and you can go check it out. It's, it's kind of lays all this stuff out. But um, basically what I do is I force myself to, you know, I identify the, the options. I research them. So I know what the attributes are. I eliminate anything that doesn't fit my criteria. And then I simply force myself to compare them one by one. I choose the better 
the one that I like each time and eliminate the other permanently. Because what happens is when you don't eliminate, you can keep going back. That's where you really have the pathology of FOBO. So I just compare the one by one, choosing the one that I like. So I always feel like I'm getting what I want and force myself to eliminate the other until I get down to one thing. And if I have trouble, then I bring in sort of people to help me. But it's a process that I lay out in the book and it's kind of long, but um, that's what I use. And I've had many people have written to me who use it as well now, and it seems to be working for them. In chapter five, the sad tale of the many who get everything he wanted. Mm. Uh, you mentioned about people who are talking to you and are looking for the next possibly more interesting person or the better table and so on. How do you deal with customers who may be driving you mad thinking there's a better product or deal that can be had? And how do you manage these people? Yeah. So that's what I call the game of foes. It's it's true. Like it's it's really hard when you're in a sales position and you have that client who just like won't close the deal with you. They want more and better and bigger and faster and whatever, cheaper. Um it's like the classic example of the person who walks into the restaurant, sits down at the table and then wants to move and wants to move again and wants to move again. They're looking for the better table. It just doesn't matter, but they they think that they need the best and they somehow have determined that the best is in another seat. Um, and what I uh, what the example that I use in the book, which I think is uh, a great one, is the story of Hotel Tonight. So I interviewed the founder of Hotel Tonight and he has this thing on the website called the Daily Drop, or it's an app, excuse me, it's called the Daily Drop. And the idea is, Hotel Tonight is designed for millennials. They only offer you, at least originally, they only would offer like 10 options in a city or something. Now they've kind of gotten into FOBO land because they sold out and now it's like overwhelming. But originally it was meant to be sort of easy for you to choose because there weren't too many options. But they still found that even with 10, people would not decide. So they created called what's called the Daily Drop, which was a 15-minute deal that would expire. And they found that people would act on that deal. So, you know, it's like, well, once a day you get this deal, you have 15 minutes to decide and people would always commit in minute 14. And so that's what you got to do with people when they're having FOBO, you have to ban their decisions. You have to basically tell them like, if you don't decide now, this is no longer going to be possible or it's going to disappear. And that forces them into actually deciding. How do you use FOMO and FOBO to your advantage in a business negotiation? So yeah, a lot of entrepreneurs when they're negotiating with investors, like even you. Yeah, exactly. FOMO and FOBO. VC is all about FOMO and FOBO. Founders want to create FOMO they, to get the investors to invest. The, the investors have FOBO because they're like, oh, you know what? Can we wait another month? I want to see another month of traction. Like, let's see if you sign that client and then we'll decide. And reali realistically, it doesn't, like if somebody's not committing, chances are they will never commit. Uh, you know, and you see that a million times where you're like waiting and waiting and person's not getting back to you. And then they just ghost you forever. And so that is, that is the reality. And so using FOMO, I mean, so the way we use FOMO to generate excitement is there's a bunch of different ways, like social proof is one. So, you know, if you're, if you got a pitch deck and you're able to get, um, you know, a great article written about you, or you have some sort of like influential person who joins your board. Like that's a classic way of using FOMO um, to, to create um, social proof, I should say, to create FOMO. Also, the minute you get that lead investor, everybody wants to pile in, right? It's a classic kind of it's like, well, the train's leaving the station. Are you getting on? Are you getting off? That's, that's how people use FOMO. I see it all the time. I had another company I invested in where every month at the end of the month, if you didn't commit, they would raise the valuation which was very effective to, you know, you're like everybody funds on the last day of the month because they don't want to get in at a higher price. 
Um, and then, you know, that's how you can use FOMO to overcome FOBO. You really, I don't think you can use FOBO to your advantage. I mean, you know, I think it's, a, it's actually bad I, I, to use it. I think um, I have a friend who has more FOBO than anybody in the world. He's the highest FOBO person I know. Um, he's, he is, he's like deeply flawed. Um, we're not, it's a long story. I won't get into, but, uh, this person is an extraordinary negotiator actually, because this person is able to, um, they hold out on every deal they ever do. But the problem is that nobody likes the person or respects them. And they think that this person is not trustworthy. And so, yeah, maybe you win in the short term, but nobody wants to work with you in the long term. Is that person successful? Uh, yeah, it depends on how you define success. I mean, is he, you know, monetarily successful? Yes. And and so this um, methodology he uses has worked well for him. Uh, it's had terrible secondary effects. You know, money, yes, but other things just are very disastrous. In terms of relationships with people. And other things too. I can't get into it because now- Yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm, sure. I'm just I'm, wondering. I'm not, I, I, I shouldn't even got into this, but yeah, like- Think about, um, I'll give you an example. Um, think about um, Donald Trump. Yes. Very hard negotiator. Very hard negotiator. Yeah, he has a lot of money, I guess. But like, you know, he, and I guess some people love him. But like, you know, he's, he's broken the law. Maybe he hasn't paid for it yet, but he may do someday. So like, uh, you know, is he the kind of person you aspire to be like in business? I mean, I don't. Um, yeah. You know, that's, that's how I think, not, not to get political. I just got super political, but you know. No, no, no. Yeah. I mean, he has a methodology and, and other people have done it too, where they pay half up front. And then when you complete the job, they're like, uh, I'm taking a 50% discount. And even though you've known they've done that to other people, you just don't believe it will happen to you. Mm. And then it happens to you and you just like, but you knew that was going to happen. So that's always interesting. Uh, my last question here is, what is the one piece of advice you would give everyone based on your personal experiences, ranging from, you know, visiting refugee camps, which you talked about today in Lebanon, to your professional success and how to manage FOMO and FOBO so it doesn't take the joy out of your life? Yeah, so <clears throat> what I do, which has been highly effective uh, for me and for many other people, it's really kind of back to my first book, The 10% Entrepreneur. And the idea is that, you know, I, I'm a total FOMO sapiens. I have FOMO all the time. I know that. And so I listen to my FOMO. I hear it. And it says things to me all the time, like, oh, you should get involved in NFTs. Or, oh, you know, like you should run a marathon, whatever. And I say, okay, fine. You know what? Let me dip a toe. Let me, you know, go learn about NFTs and figure out what the heck it is and, and get involved in a way that is sensible. I'm not going to go out and pour all my savings into an NFT, but maybe I can, you know, make a small investment and just learn from it. Um, maybe I should run a marathon, but I'm not going to run a marathon tomorrow. I'm going to run a 10K and figure out, do I even like this? And so that's what I try to do. When we feel FOMO, yes, we want to do something, but we have no idea if the perception that we're going to like that thing is real or if it's deception. And so therefore we need to separate perception from deception by adding in a ton of facts and information. And so that's what I try to do. I try to demystify these things by separating the FOMO from the reality. And that allows me to make way better decisions about how to allocate my time, money, and energy. You know, I, before I do let you go, you tell me you're also a venture investor or angel investor. Yeah. And, and so what, uh, somebody had asked me earlier about this. 
Um, what what are you investing in? Like, what types of businesses do you invest in? Industries, you know, are they seed stage? What are they? Yeah, so I make personal investments. Um, I've been investing my own sort of capital uh, over the years in kind of early stage um, tech companies, usually either consumer business services or the areas where I have deeper experience. Um, and, you know, I go very early because I'm looking for like, you know, I'm willing to take risk to get an outsized return. Um, and then in my job, I'm part of a VC fund in Latin America. We're investing in series C, A and B um, in companies that are generally in healthcare, um, education, business services, consumer. Um, and we invest across Latin America, Spanish speaking Latin America principally. And so I do that as well. Uh, just a question from the audience before we let you go. Um, how do you draw the line between trying to search for greatness and work for it versus trying uh, being caught up in FOMO and FOBO? Yeah, that is always a question I ask myself because I do a lot of things. And uh, sometimes I say, would I, would I be better served to just do one thing and be like the best in the whole universe at it? And I think for some people, that is the right play. For some people choosing like being a surgeon and that's all they do. And like they, they're a surgeon 20 hours a day, like that makes them happy. And for other people that would not make them happy. Like I personally find much more meaning and joy and excitement out of doing many things and then figuring out what I like and investing in the things that excite me. Um, I've, I, I was always like that as a kid. And then the, the world of work and education sort of made me much more siloed. And I think I was diminished because of it. And now I, I enjoy to do many different things with focus. Like there's a consistency through those things. And I think that's, you know, it's for me anyway, it's like figuring out where the common threads are between those things and making sure that you're not just like completely spread thin into things that areas where you don't have commonality. That is the kind of, I don't take on something new unless I, A, can be highly efficient at it because I'm already operating in the space or B, I want to learn a specific thing about that. And so I'm doing it from an educational perspective. Other than that, I try to say no so that I don't sort of end up all over the place. And I think that's a good way for others as well. But maybe you are that person who says, you know what, I just want to do this one thing. And if that makes you happy, like, you know, go for it. Patrick, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. And um, if you'll email me your podcast, the link to yours, then I'll make sure everybody gets that as well as long uh, along with the link to your book. Oh, I will do that. And it's, it's called FOMO sapiens. You can go to FOMO sapiens.com, but I will send that over to your way, Mark as well. And thank you for your time today. Thanks everybody. We'll look forward to seeing you all next Friday. Everybody have a great and safe weekend. Thank you for listening to another episode of the best business minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 PM Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.